Thank you again for checking out the Trojan Talk podcast. I'm Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com. And we have a full show today. Three guests, three conversations, spreading the wealth around, so to speak. As we do every week, we will start with Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, and our resident Trojansports.com analyst to break down the 17-14 win at Oregon State. The first real tense game of the Lincoln-Riley era, a dramatic outcome in the final minutes. I was, of course, up there in Corvallis in person. It was one of the more exciting finishes, best games I've ever covered, and we're talking about 15 years of doing this, maybe even longer. I've lost count, uh, really going back to when I was in school at the University of Maryland from 02 to 06, covering games as a student reporter. So, yeah, uh, I guess that's 20 years. Now I feel old. I definitely feel old now. I should not have done the math. Oh, well. Anyways, one of the most exciting games so we will get into all of that with Max and certainly get his opinion on Caleb Williams, what he saw, what he thinks might have been the cause for the inaccuracy, inconsistency, etc. As always, we will do Max's favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the game, which there were limited choices this week, and I think the <laughs> the selection was pretty obvious, but Max's breakdown is really good and really in-depth. And very insightful, as as you would expect. And then Max and I talked about Arizona State ever so briefly. Ever so briefly. Just enough time to get predictions out, as we do each week. But, in our second segment, we are joined by Hode Rubino, the publisher of DevilsDigest.com, our rival's Arizona State site, who is always a great guest, always great insight. We talk to him every year before the USC-Arizona State game. And we... We did a little bit of matchup talk, but I more or less wanted to cover what I was interested in is just what what it's been like around that program this season and what the aftermath of the Herm Edwards firing has been, what the pulse of coaching search is at this point, which is always fun. As you know, we went through that last year, and <laughs> of, all, of all the names tossed around, very few people mentioned Lincoln Riley during that whole process, which is why I cautioned the entire time not to read too much into Twitter reports because a lot goes into that. And so there are names out there for that job, for Nebraska. Who knows who is actually in play? But we get Hode's take on the Arizona State coaching search and what they expect, what he expects for the Sun Devils' future and the Pac-12's future uh, along the same storyline as to what happens for the conference and, and its members moving forward. So a good conversation. Hode readily acknowledged that he does not expect much of a challenge from Arizona State this weekend in the Coliseum. So not a heavy matchup breakdown show, but I think you'll get the gist of, of what the Sun Devils are bringing to Los Angeles. And then to cap it off, I wanted to just get Rivals National Recruiting Director Adam Gorney on the podcast for a quick segment to go over some topical recruiting matters, uh, topical USC recruiting matters, and just get some quick thoughts from him. So that's a real fast segment at the end. That is our show, three guests. I really enjoyed putting all of it together, so I hope you enjoy it, and we'll get right into the show. Okay, let's get right into it with our resident Trojansports.com analyst, Max Brown, the former quarterback. Max, how are you? 
I'm good. We escaped this one, Ryan. We escaped. My thought was just how the the range of outcomes, if they don't score in that final drive and they lose that game, all that CFP talk is done, and that's probably premature anyway, but that stuff dries up, at least for the, for the time being. The Caleb Heisman stuff totally dries up. But that one drive, that one play – kind of keeps everything on the, on the table. So, yeah, they survive one, and it keeps uh, every week very interesting moving forward. Are the uh, are the message boards already mentioned CFP? Because if you are, be aware. It's a slippery slope. we got to slow our roll a little bit, only September. You know, I'm not even sure that, that my audience is driving that, but just the fact that the Vegas odds makers have them pretty high up on that list that's really where that conversation comes from is that the the betting public seems to think that they have a good chance at it yeah and i definitely see from the the vegas line why it makes sense but as a as a usc fan given the past decade that we've had it's uh still feels still feels premature which i know you're on the same page as me there yeah no no i I totally agree i could have gone either way at the end there and and if they lose we're looking at much different storylines, much different narrative. Maybe everything comes back to earth a little bit. They win, and now it's this, well, you know what? Maybe this team needed a game like this. Maybe winning that way is more valuable to this team at this point in its development than the blowouts before it. I don't know if that's just a convenient framing, if that's true, but that's what we come out of this game thinking. Like, Sure, we're going to – and you and I are going to talk about Caleb Williams' struggles and scrutinize his performance. And there's definitely things that still exist that would give fans pause about where the season goes. But the main takeaway is now that look how together that team was. Look how bought in that team was. And they never quit. And they, they stuck with it. And their quarterback struggled the whole game but came through when it mattered most. And, and, and grit and this and that and, and any other cliche you can throw out there. That's the storyline off this game. And it could have been a polar opposite if one play doesn't happen. If either the touchdown from Caleb Addison or the interception at the end, and we're having a different conversation. So very fun game to be at. Very loud stadium. Uh, one of the more exciting games I've covered. So a lot to talk about. I'll talk about for sure. I don't think it's just uh, media talk or coach talk to say winning that way was was valuable and needed. And I mean, for the for the only fact of hey, you now prove that you know your defense can win you a game, which I did not think that uh, a month ago. I thought you know the offense was always going to have to live in the 30s, um, especially in close games like that. But I think there's the uh, the on-field aspect there, and I also think there's the uh, the psychological aspect, the mental aspect as well of, you know, we, all these transfers coming together and, you know, the, a lot of new faces and whatnot. A game like that definitely bonds you. A game like that gives the defense more confidence than they, than they had a month ago. And I also think a game like that, you know, is, is from – because from a USU lens, we always kind of act like Caleb Williams is the uh, – you know, has been there and done that on every account. The reality is, he hasn't. He's still really young. Um, and so I think just, I, I genuinely think a win like that, when you walk away through Lincoln Rally say, man, I am glad that happened because you are Tessa. I don't think that's just, uh, don't think it's just cliche. But I also think say, Oregon State is a good football team. It's not like it's a close game, which you've seen in uh, Monday night in, uh, in Trojans Live, Lincoln Rally referenced this, of some of the close calls that Clemson's had in years past. And some of those close calls were against bad football teams. Oregon State is not a bad football team. That, that's going to be a team that's uh, 
going to compete every single week in every one of their games. Um, so I, uh, I walk away super encouraged from that win. Yeah, the defense is the story, and we, we will get into it. But we have to start with the quarterback. Whenever there's a quarterback topic and we have you on, we have to start with the quarterback. And that's, that's where we're going to start. It's a great point you made about just everyone treating Caleb Williams like a finished product. And I remember when he transferred here, I was looking back through the numbers, there were a couple of games last year where you're like, hmm, what happened there? I think it was the Baylor game, maybe the Iowa State game. And we never really asked about it. We never really got into, you know, what what got him and the offense so off track in those games. And everyone just kind of took the narrative and ran with it of USC's got a Heisman contender. This guy is going to be one of the best quarterbacks in the country. The potential number one draft pick in two years. And then he came out of the gates and, and played like it and, and validated everyone uh, thinking that way. But, yes, he's a, he's a true sophomore. He's still developing. He's a true sophomore playing in a very loud road stadium over the weekend. And things went a little haywire, and he had to kind of roll with that. 16 of 36, 16 of 36 passing, sub 50%. I wouldn't have imagined that being possible after the first couple of weeks we saw him. Max, what do you think was the main cause for that? Was it was it nerves? Was it anything mechanical? Do you th- fear that maybe there's a physical component to it? What was your, your first takeaway? My first takeaway, it actually uh, was in the air when much of the game was going on. So I, have to, I, I watched it after the fact. And so you're less emotional after the fact when you know the result. And the first thing that jumped out to me is USC was never able to get the quick passing game going. And I think that's both a schematic thing of, hey, you want to force defenders to tackle. Like those those easy throws, those hitches, those bubble screens, you get into Mario Williams' hands and you force Oregon State to tackle. They didn't do that. So I think some of it is scheme and that you never were able to get Caleb Williams in a rhythm. I think another part is, and Lincoln Riley referenced this on Monday night, is I think Lincoln always felt like they were one home run play away from breaking the thing open. And when that's your gut feeling, you continually try to go back and get that chunk play. You continue to go back and go back because there's something on film that they like. There's some matchup they like, and they were never able to get that chunk play or very rarely get that chunk play. And I, I thought I was telling Lincoln Riley's comments in that he said, oh, we were so close on so many plays. He didn't say, oh, we need to be more accurate at the quarterback position. Mm-hmm. How I take his comments is it's a block here or there. It's a blitz recognition here or there. It's breaking your route at 12 instead of 10. It's breaking that at 8 instead of 6. Little things like that that you don't notice from a viewer standpoint that matter when it comes to quarterback accuracy. And I also think big picture, don't get me wrong, I think Caleb Williams had an off night. But when you try to really break down, okay, why did he have an off night? Sure, you can have errant throws. But all those little elements, they matter. And I think that's the beauty of Lincoln Riley's offense is oftentimes we lose track of that because it is always so clean and it does always look so easy. But it is easy because you are doing the little things. And I don't think USC did that over the course of four quarters. And let's step back even further. I thought Oregon State had the perfect game plan. They, they, that, that defensive playbook for the Beavers was deep. You go back and watch that film, they are bringing so many different looks at USC which keeps Caleb off balance, which keeps Lincoln Riley as a play caller off balance, and it keeps the offensive line off balance. A lot of those plays, it looks like Oregon State is blitzing, 
and I don't, I'm sure the announcers at times said, oh, they're, they're blitzing, look at the beast blitzing. But it's all, they're only bringing four guys. Uh, but it just the way they're bringing them, I think, can confuse the offensive line. And even if the offensive line picks it up, you're still able to get a push on Caleb and heat things up more in that game than we've seen in weeks prior. So a lot of factors go into it. Everyone's got to level up. But uh, I thought Lincoln's comments Monday night were telling of how he uh, watched the film and, and, uh, and critiqued his guys. And he doubled down on it Tuesday when we asked him after practice, or I asked him first question after practice, if there was anything technically off with Caleb. And, and he goes, everyone oversimplifies the passing game as it all being about the quarterback. And it's not, it's about so many other factors. Uh, so it's exactly what you just said, but he, he expounded on it a little further. And, uh, you know, he, he dismissed any concern of, of this being like something they have to worry about moving forward or it's going to continue but certainly everyone who watched the game on the TV saw that the scene in the fourth quarter where he had to give up, you know, a pretty impassioned pep talk to Caleb on the bench and, and Caleb seemed to be, you know, pretty down about everything. And Riley thought he had to kind of lift him up there. And, and certainly we know how it, how it finished. Williams, you know, was one of the heroes of the game with that touchdown throw, but uh, it seemed to be affecting him as it, as it went along. I thought it was really cool too that, you know, you got the sense that that was something that they had coached and game planned and talked through in the off season that came to reality in week four of the regular season. Like it wasn't just something that, oh, we find ourselves in this situation and here we go. It was no Lincoln and Caleb talking in the off season, knowing that hey, we're going to have success this year, and knowing that not every game is going to be perfect and the offense isn't going to be perfect every single week, and you're going to find yourselves on the road. That, Things aren't feeling hot, and you gotta you gotta dig deep. And I thought that moment was super cool because one, you can just tell totally you prep for it, but then two, you also can see you know Lincoln Riley's coaching style. I mean, the quarterback in me is I love that. I, I really do. I, I don't know. I think it's special when you know we've seen coaches like a Clay Helton, like where he would do that maybe a lot, right? Kind of getting in guys and pep talking and. It, I mean, it was still good there, but it felt like it, mean, it means something different with Lincoln because he doesn't always do that. And so when he does come up to you in the fourth quarter and he's like, dude, you got this. I, I, you got my vote of confidence. Just his overall style and temperament, you believe it. And I'm sure Caleb Williams did right there. And I just thought it was a, a really cool and real coaching moment we saw um, firsthand. It, it absolutely was. That's the best way to frame it. Just what stood out in talking to Riley and hearing him both on Trojans Live when you talked to him and then after practice Tuesday was just how he was about the whole thing. And, and he was just like, like guys, like that's, this is going to happen. Like no one goes through a season without games like this. And, and every player is going to have a game like that. And it's about how you respond. And but he, it wasn't just coach speak. He just really seemed to be like, I think you guys are making t- too big a deal about this. Caleb's fine. We're fine. We got to do better. We know that. But this is not like a, a, a major thing right now. And I, I came away from it, like, just kind of b- believing him and, and giving him the benefit of the doubt there. I would be interested. I asked him Monday night, and he kind of shrugged it off. But I went back and looked at all his losses as a head coach. And unless I was miss, miss, uh, miss seeing some, every one of the losses is like, 48 45, 38 35, 41 28. Like they're scoring points. I wonder how 
you know, out of character it felt for Lincoln being in that situation where he was not able to score points. You just don't see that. At OU, when he lost, it was, oh, Alex Grinch is the one messing up. They can't do anything defensively, which that's a whole other conversation of how, you know, Alex Grinch proving a point and uh, and sending a message for all the people that were, were doubting him and whatnot. But I just, I thought that whole vibe was a great, like a great test for everyone and ultimately at the end of the day everyone passed yeah yeah it it is a good point but you mentioned this earlier about the the play calling and and staying committed to the pass and still trying to get it going you know even when the run game was working it became a major thing on twitter and on our in-game chat on the message board like fans just you know for the first time really second guessing lincoln riley which was going to happen at some point just it's the nature of, of fandom but everyone was like run the ball why is he not running the ball why does he keep trying to throw the ball it's not working i you watched it after the facts so and maybe you kind of had a thought going into it but were you having the same thought that they should be just going all in on the run when things are playing out like that I was not, no, and I don't know if I'll ever feel that way at the Lincoln Rally play caller. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, and I've been, I haven't been in the Lincoln Rally offense, but I've been in enough offenses to know that the types of schemes they were calling, you could tell in that headset, they're saying, gosh dang it, we should have this. Just Mario break across his face, or Jordan, man, get inside and get on top, and you genuinely feel like, you know, you're, 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 you're that close, so... Lincoln Riley's earned the right to be able to do that. Um, if anything, to me, I thought, hey, if you are going to call a pass play and you do want to get your best players involved, Jordan Addison, Mario Williams, Caleb Williams' right arm, maybe go back to the shorter passing game. That was the one thing that I had the biggest uh, maybe criticism on, but Lincoln's earned the right to, uh, to uh, continue to stay in attack mode. Yeah, and that was exactly my thought. Is I'm not about to think that I know more about him running his offense than he does. So I just kind of was trying to be the devil's advocate through all that. Let's go to the final touchdown. Well, let's go to the final series because we cannot talk about this game and not talk about the Nilan nudge, which is now in part of USC lore, hopefully. What was your your thought watching that play obviously usc fans were transported back to the the bush push but if they don't get that fourth down conversion they may not get another chance who knows what happens what was your thought on that one my first thought was i mean i didn't have a name for it right away but yeah nilan nudge and that will only go down uh more and more in usc lore if, if this team keeps winning and we can really look back uh you know, years from now, what that what that could mean. But, I mean, it's a testament to to Brett. It's a testament to that offensive line. And it will be cool if that play ends up, you know, getting a USC a CFP appearance or getting them a Pac-12 title, Rose Bowl title bid, and you, you backtrack that moment. How cool would it be that Brett Nealon's the guy that's been the starting center for four years and, you know, was the bridge between the Helton staff and the Lincoln Rally staff and more from a – metaphoric standpoint how cool that it's him that's in there but no it, i mean it's a testament to him and good thing the rules have changed what the past three or four years to uh to allow for such a thing yeah and a good thing that the refs didn't you know blow the whistle and say four progress was stopped you know I, it was probably close to the fine line of, of that play being blown dead if he didn't get there as quick as he did I know that you talked to lincoln about it on monday on trojans live but 
when we talked to him Tuesday, he was still giddy about that play. And he said, he goes, it was just awesome. It was one of my favorite plays of all time. As we've referenced a few times and a few different instances along the way, I think it was another case of maybe representing something broader, something bigger within the program that they're preaching. And in this case, it's, you know, play to the whistle, strain. You know, if, if, if the ball carrier still has the ball, get to where he is in case there's a fumble or in case you can throw a block. And it really just summed all that up in, in one play. And it was it was kind of the, the topic of conversation Tuesday after practice. Everyone was asking everybody about it. And, and then, you know, since we're in the NIL era now, Brent already had on Twitter, he's, he's hawking autographed uh, trading cards where he inscribes a Elon nudge on it. So <laughs> I love it. I love it too. And that investment only gets more and more valuable the more this team wins. So. Keep, uh, keep at it, Brent Nelon. Definitely. Go go to Twitter. Go to his website. Get your Nelon Nudge autograph card, fans. I, uh, I, I DM'd Brett on Instagram saying he's got the best uh, NIL deal I've seen. It's uh, a shirt brand that I uh, that I love. Super random tidbit. But uh, Mezzan Main. I was like, man, if I was in school, that's the exact, Nilo- that's the exact uh, NIL deal I'd want. So I'm sure more, uh, more brands are going to come his way. They should. Absolutely now. So, so that extends the drive, and then obviously the uh, touchdown pass, the 21-yard touchdown pass to Jordan Addison. Max, break down that pass to us, that play. We heard Addison after the game say that he used late hands, that he didn't want to tip the defender off, that the ball was about to be there. But th- there seemed to be a pretty narrow window to get that ball in before that, that uh, defensive back closed out on the sideline. Yeah, in two weeks in a row, uh, I'll, I'll be breaking down this play on my own social channel, so uh, check it out on Thursday night. But I, I love this play and love it for a few reasons. One, you know, I talked Lincoln Riley off air, and I was like, hey, were you expecting that coverage, and is that why you call, made that play call? Because the way Oregon State lined up originally, they, ra- they lined up in like a cover three look, and that play call versus cover three is terrible. But that play call versus three cloud, which is what they got, and it's a different coverage. I know it might sound same, but it's completely different. is a is a is a great play call. You give your quarterback answers, and Lincoln's response to me was, "Oh no, we called something that we felt like we had answers everywhere." And um, <laughs> I, either either way, the recognition by Caleb Williams, and that's three weeks in a row where he has drilled a whole shot to the field on that route against Stanford. It was Brennan Rice against Fresno. I forget exactly who caught it. Maybe Taj Washington. But then this week, it was Jordan Addison. And it's the recognition. It's the arm strength. And just the no, like, to, to not hesitate at all and know exactly what you're getting off the impressive. One thing, and you'll see this in my little breakdown. The reason, so, like, if you're critiquing Oregon State there, like, if you're calling three cloud, that safety should be there. He should pick that. Like, that's why he, like, that is his guy. You have number one vertical if he goes vertical. But the reason that he wasn't able to get there is Oregon State disguised him, and he was walked up much closer to the line of scrimmage before the ball was snapped. And as a result of disguising it, he had to open up his hips towards the other side and then flip him back around towards Jordan. And that just half-second hip turn, um, like, you know, a second and a half before the ball reached Jordan caused that DB to be late. And so I know it's a lot over a podcast medium, but it's it, it's cool because Oregon State felt like they had to disguise, right, to try to keep this USC offense off balance. 
but that disguise made them late to breaking on the ball and then led to the touchdown. So it's kind of a cool trade-off of, hey, you can either play USC straight up and Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley can get a clean picture at you and call their favorite play, or you can do the tricky stuff in disguise, but if we catch you in your disguise, we might make you pay, and that's exactly what happened on that uh, on that touchdown throw. Great analysis. So I assume that that, that was your favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the week? Without a doubt. This week, Ryan, we didn't have as many options. But, yeah, uh, yeah that, uh, that was my favorite one for sure. It was just it was, it was cool on, on multiple levels. It's bound for us then on why that call against that, that defense was such a good fit as opposed to they had a different look. Yeah, so on the broadcast and I know on social media, they kept saying, oh, it's a cover two safety. Technically not. He, his body language is, is similar, but technically there's three deep safeties on that look. And because there's three deep safeties, it shows you that, hey, there's even less ground that each defender is forced to cover, which is even more of a problem for Oregon State that you weren't able to defend that. Anyways, that call's really good because of uh, you, you're, you're really attacking one defender, that corner to the field, right? You're putting a five-yard out by Mario Williams right in his face, and so he has to break down on that, and in his mind, he's jumping that. But then behind it, you have Jordan Addison on a vertical route, and that pocket behind the corner and in front of the safety in that sideline or on that sideline, that is an answer. And keep in mind, in this coverage, you're dropping eight guys into coverage. So, I mean, at just sheer math, offensively you're at a disadvantage from a vertical passing game right you have four maybe five guys running down the field versus eight defenders that's a, that's an Oregon State friendly situation right there which only proves further how much of an absolute dime it was from Caleb Williams and credit Jordan Addison for finding the uh, finding the crease in the defense awesome great stuff everyone check out Max's Twitter later this week for his expanded breakdown of that but that is a much deeper understanding of that play than I think anyone anyone had before this this podcast. So awesome! I said the defense was the story, and yet we spent almost the whole segment talking about the offense. So let's get to the defense real quick. Do you think that they truly turned the corner, or it was just a it was a great performance where it all came together? Uh, how how confident are you now that that unit is is elevated? Good, good way to frame the question. I, I don't sit here saying, oh, wow, they turned the corner, because um, I still feel like, you know, we, uh, we kind of know what that defense is, but we saw in that game what their, call it, you know, high the, the, the high end of that is. I, I still think, or I, I guess I, they, they showed me enough the first three weeks to be like, oh, wow, they have this in them. It's just a matter of piecing it together consistently quarter and quarter. And that's what they did versus Oregon State. It wasn't like to me speak. They just pieced it together in that game. So I still have the same big picture concerns in terms of, you know, staying healthy in the, in the back end of the season, especially up front, front seven wise. But I also look at guys playing with a lot more confidence. I mean, seeing uh, Brandon Peely in there, staying active and jumping around, like even just watching him from a body language, language standpoint over the, I know he was out last year, but I mean, that to me is, night and day different and I think the most exciting part for me defensively is how many different guys did it and how many different position groups did it as well I mean you relied on the corners at times you relied on the safeties to come up and make tackles uh, Eric Gentry's proven to be an absolute weapon um, on the defensive side of things and then you know defensive line wise staying active so it's not like you're just sitting here saying 
oh, wow, we're relying on Shane Lee to run sideline to sideline, which is what we said a few years back with, like, Cameron Smith. It feels like that was someone of the DNA, or, like, Talanoa Hufunga in years past, where he was, you know, the, the shining star, but it may be becoming because other guys aren't really showing out. So I look at that defense, I look at, like, six to eight playmakers, that, and I'm sure there was more that, you know, don't show up in the, show up in the stat sheet that, uh, that showed out, and that, uh, that depth is a uh, great and what feels like sustainable uh, sustainable sign. I, I give uh, Alex Grinch every opportunity to kind of pound his chest and, and say this is a huge statement for our defense. And, of course, you know, he, he didn't bite. He didn't do that. He goes, that's just, you know, that's, that's football. It's, it's, it's never about one side. It's about the team. And, and we always knew we were going to have to do our job. And so, you know, all, all things you'd expect him to say. But it, but it was a statement for his defense. Uh, four more interceptions. So, you know, this turnover thing is real. Okay, 14 turnovers in three games is – that's a third of the season. So, that's a real sample size. It's not a fluke. And it's just a part of this team's DNA, which is exciting. And I, I think you can see why it happens just in the way they fly around and and uh, strain to the ball and, and just everything he's tried to instill in it. So, I'm no longer surprised by that, and I think it's going to – be a, a major reason factor whenever this team does the rest of the season. That was kind of the takeaway for me is that, that it was a statement for the defense, but it, anything else strike you, Max? Yeah, I think it's, we always talk about it from an offensive lens of like, oh, when the offense faces a new team in the Pac-12, they're going to face a, a, a different look and you, can, you never know what to expect. But I also think, you know, when opposing offenses go up against our defense, it's going to be new because the athleticism is going to be at a different level than most Pac-12 teams. And yes, we can, you know, nitpick the the size up front or the depth up front, but the activity that Grinch has given folks and the athleticism, just big picture that USC has on that defense, it's going to consistently cause turnovers. I, I like how you said, Hey, this is uh, a third of the, of the season. Now we have a large enough sample size to know that it's not just a fluke. Okay. Why is it not a fluke? Because we're, we're, there's a lot of movement on this defense. This defense is very athletic. And like you said, they're, they're flying around versus other Pac-12 defenses can, are, are, are more stagnant, right? Maybe they're not doing as much. Maybe they're not shifting at the defensive line. They don't have athletic linebackers that can run around and shift around and, and put your receivers in tough spots. They just don't have that in their defensive DNA. USC does. And while it's a little difference here or there, it makes a big impact when you talk about, you know, uh, an interception that, is caused by a, a rush that's just a, a foot faster or an Eric Gentry arm that's just a foot longer type of thing. Those uh, those little factors add up defensively to create turnovers. There will be a lot of talk about Eric Gentry and his long arms this week as USC plays Arizona State, which is obviously where he transferred from. We will be talking to him Wednesday, uh, probably about the time you're listening to this podcast. It'll be an interesting story for, for everyone. But last thoughts on the game. Uh, there was a great moment at the end. I, I had a great perch. The way – their stadium is set up. It's you know under construction, so only half of it's open. But the press box was on the other half, on, on the on the closed side, and it wasn't like a, a traditional press box. It was more like a storage container with with windows, a very temporary thing. But it was a great vantage point. And then there was a this walkway where you could walk down to the field, and before you went down the final staircase, you're kind of standing like ten feet up right behind the USC bench. So I went down there for the final minute. And just happened to start shooting video because you never know what's going to happen. And so I posted this video. It, it got a ton of views, like 28,000 views last I checked. 
from that vantage point of the interception with the, the play kind of in the background and the, the sideline in the foreground and you just saw the reaction of everybody and it was it was a really cool moment to take in from that vantage point. But there was a, a moment within the moment where after the game was over, everyone's hugging, everyone's looking around, Lincoln Riley spots Grinch like 20 feet away and just takes off power walking toward them and just like grabs him from, from behind with, with this big congratulatory hug. And you could just tell how happy he was, obviously for the win and for the defense to help you know, the team win, but for Grinch to have that moment and, and to do that, you could just see it on, on a personal level what it meant for Lincoln Riley to see Alex Grinch kind of get that spotlight. I love that, and that goes deeper than uh, anything USC-related. I mean, it goes back, I'm sure, to their Oklahoma days yeah. where, you know, the criticism when OU did lose was oftentimes the the defense and was Grinch, you know, that that elite of a level to, to be at Oklahoma. And I think the answer to that is yes. Obviously, Lincoln Riley brought him from OU to to USC, but also with a performance like that. So I think that's super cool. You can tell every single time Grinch comes up when we talk with Lincoln Riley, he uh, he loves what he does. And the fact that Lincoln Riley is the offensive genius that he is, and he continues to go to bat and love up on what Grinch does on a daily basis, you can see that, you know, there's a huge level of respect for uh, how difficult it is to go up against an Alex Grinch defense. And we saw that firsthand in, uh, in last week's game. That's a great point that I've never highlighted. Like, if Lincoln Riley is just totally selling out for you as a defensive coordinator, uh, this is a guy who's breaking down coordinators every week of his life. That that probably counts for something. So, yes, great point. We'll wrap up real quickly. We're going to have Devil's Digest publisher Hode Rubino on to to break down the the mess or the situation, whatever you want to call it, at Arizona State. But I wanted to get some quick thoughts from you, Max, about this team USC is going to play this week. Obviously thrust into uh, chaos and flux with Herm Edwards getting let go early in the season, and just really that cloud's been hanging over them for a long time now. What jumps out to you about Arizona State, and is there anything that USC should be worried about in this matchup? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a tough situation for ASU, and as SC fans, I mean, we can relate a little bit to the, the dynamic that they're in. Obviously, every coaching firing is different, but the, the optics are, are somewhat somewhat relatable. Um, but yeah, I mean, we mentioned Eric Gentry transferring. That was the story of ASU's offseason. Tons of guys leaving that program. Their top receiver, their quarterback, top linebacker, and in, 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 or up-and-coming linebacker in Gentry, so... They lose. They lost a lot of skill. Um, their quarterback Emory Jones. I think he's a good player. I think he. I mean, he's he's respectable. I mean, we've seen Pac-12 offenses in the past where it feels like they have no answer at the quarterback position. That's not the case with Emory Jones. He got beat out by an NFL talent. He's athletic. He can operate from the pocket. If guys are open and and SC doesn't come to play, Emory Jones can beat you 100. percent He's not. You know. Got off to a great start this season, which kind of works one of two ways, I feel like. Maybe he has a chip on his shoulder and wants to go ball out against USC and prove a point. That's maybe the, the pro Emory Jones stance. The negative one is if he starts pressing and, you know, it starts to become a snowball effect in the opposite direction. That's what you have to be worried about. The one guy that um, jumps out on film from a matchup standpoint is their tight end, Messiah Swinson. Big, looks like a basketball player out there. When you talk about, hey, him getting matched up on a Caleb Bullock, or I guess even more of a Max Williams, who those safeties aren't big safeties. 
I'm sure from an ASU perspective, that might be a matchup that they feel like they can win. Not saying that that is true, but I'm sure that's what they might be saying. And when you talk about Emory Jones and his mobility and kind of zone read action, when you have an athletic tight end, sometimes that can put linebackers in a bind. So keep your eye on number 80, Messiah Swinson. And then defensively, you're going to recognize Merlin Robertson, number eight. He's been their linebacker, which feels like forever. He's back there. They lost their best defensive lineman up front to Louisville in the offseason, hence the transfer conversations that we had. So, I mean, this is an ASU roster that's in a tough spot. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep it concise. I feel SC should, should take care of business. Quick prediction in the close of that? I'll go USC 38, ASU 17. And I am going 52 to 21. Offense gets back on track. Max, great stuff as always. Shorter segment this week. But uh, when we have a, a bigger game coming up next week, we'll definitely spend more time on the matchup breakdown. Love what you do, and I know our listeners appreciate it. Hey, always fun. Thanks, Ryan. See you next week. Okay, welcoming back into the show. Uh, we do this every year because he's uh, great at what he does and has great perspective. Hode Rubino, the publisher of Devil's Digest, our rival's Arizona site, joins us every year before the USC Arizona State matchup. Hode, thanks for being back here. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Obviously, I've covered some tough seasons uh, at USC. I totally can uh, empathize, sympathize, whatever, with what your your experience in it this year. But what's it been like covering this team? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really been uh, tough. Uh, you know, for, you know, for the fans and the staff members and uh, the players, I think those are you know more important than whatever the beat writers may or may not feeling. But obviously, when it's your job, uh, you like to have some 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 good days at work. And uh, when you watch an absolute embarrassing loss at home to to Eastern Michigan, a team who, by the way, only one week after beating ASU, lost to a Buffalo team, and this was a, a home game for Eastern Michigan, fifty to thirty-one. Oh, and by the way, this Buffalo team, dating back to last season, lost seven games straight. Wow. So uh, that puts it in a real adverse perspective. And then some, what Arizona State did not accomplish in that uh, home loss, that obviously led to the dismissal of head coach Herm Edwards, which uh, the consensus was that he was not going to continue in, for the 2023 season. But obviously being dismissed this early uh, in the year was, was somewhat a surprise, but that shows the magnitude of that loss against Eastern Michigan. And look, uh, if you were trying to rebound from such a decision, so uh, there's really not a whole lot of hope on the horizon, I think, for this Sun Devil program uh, to reverse their fortunes. Yeah, to get back-to-back top 15 national opponents right on the heels of that is less than ideal, but the whole thing's been less than ideal. This cloud's been over the program for a while. Obviously, no one's surprised that Herm Edwards was let go. Uh, the timing would be the only variable. Going into the season, what did you realistically expect from this team, and what did you think that Herm's future was when the season started? Well, I mean, uh, again, uh, when it comes to Herm's uh, future, I knew that 2022 was going to be his last year back then. Uh, and that was a game, actually, where they didn't play all that bad. And uh, it's not only that you didn't expect them to lose to Eastern Michigan in Tempe the next week, you really thought that maybe in that mini gauntlet of uh, Utah at USC, in Washington at home right before the bye week, that ASU maybe could squeeze out a win uh, somewhere. But um, obviously what happened against Eastern Michigan uh, really changed everything uh, quite a a bit for the program. And now that uh, 6-6 and uh, prediction that at least I had uh, definitely looks like fool's gold uh, right now 
and um, like I said, there's really not a whole a whole lot of hope on in sight. I would just say that maybe, just maybe, when you look on paper, the second half of the ASU Pac-12 schedule is somewhat more comfortable. And I'm trying really, really careful to uh, choosing my words because uh, aside from Colorado. I don't think there's any team right now in the Pac-12 that, that, that's actually worse than ASU, but maybe some way, somehow, they, could, they can turn it around after the bye week. But, you know, you talk about a top 15 uh, opponent last week, top 15 opponent this week, and a top 15 opponent the following week, uh, Washington at home. Uh, like I said, if you're trying to rebound from the rut that you're in, uh, this schedule is not doing you any favors at all. You know, I've, I've been pretty immersed in, in what's going on here, so I didn't digest all of the, the post-term split stuff, but certainly that video of, of him in the end zone walking off the field, did he get fired in the end zone, or what was the actual story there? Uh, yeah, th- th- that's uh, one uh, of uh, many, uh, well, I should say many, one of a couple bogus stories that are circling the Internet right now. There's another bogus story that uh, an ASU staff member uh, was at such odds with Herm Edwards that actually he was leaking yes. intel or game plans uh, to, you, know, you know to opponents. Obviously, no evidence provided for that. No evidence provided to that video of Herm Edwards allegedly being fired in the end zone. And uh, you know, not, not, not to take a dig at USC, but uh, maybe after what happened uh, at the tarmac over there with, with LAX and Lane Kiffin, uh, I think uh, that some uh, some people's imagination was running just uh, a, a little a little too wild. Uh, Ray Anderson, the athletic director, said that uh, he met with Herm Edwards both Saturday night after the Eastern Michigan uh, loss, as well as uh, Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. Uh, Herm Edwards was there to address the team, uh, uh, basically saying that uh, he and the program are are parting ways. So, no, there was no firing um, in the end zone, but I think that a lot of folks knew that uh, Herm Edwards' days were numbered and not so much, you know, this being his last season – but maybe uh, not making it, uh, you know, by the open, uh, by the bye week. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always interesting when an interim coach takes over. We experienced that last year. Dante Williams certainly tried to change some things on the fly. Didn't quite work. But what's what's been different without Herm? Yeah, I mean, Sean Aguano is, is the interim head coach. And uh, I think, you know, different, different personality than Herm as somebody who uh, – is maybe less, you know, less less of a showman, and maybe I guess when you're on ESPN for ten plus years, it's just kind of embedded in in, in your DNA at that point. But uh, Sean Aguano is somebody who is was very very uh, down to earth. Uh, he's really been preaching family or Ohana, as as they say in Hawaiian. Uh, uh, Sean Aguano is, is a native uh, native of Kauai, and he's uh, somebody who uh, was coaching one of the biggest uh, high school powerhouses the state of Arizona has ever seen in Chandler High School. Then he came in 2019 to coach uh, the running backs at Arizona State and really had a good run over there coaching uh, Eno Benjamin, who was with the Arizona Cardinals, or Sean White, who was with uh, the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And even uh, bringing uh, on board uh, Wyoming transfer Xavier Valaday, who uh, has been one of the lone bright spots uh, on, on, on offense uh, right, right now. Uh, de- definitely has you know the, that track record uh, you know going from him for him, and he's just really just uh, trying to I guess create a more conducive for success uh, uh, locker room uh, and, and, and team culture. Uh, there were some uh, two players actually, maybe uh, two that uh, USC fans might be familiar with uh, the uh, 
uh, twin uh, defensive backs, Kian and Kiwan Markham, who prepped at, at Long Beach Poly. Um, Sean Aguano uh, basically said in a certain term that uh, those are two players that have had a quote-unquote hard time with uh, the dismissal of Herm Edwards and uh, because they did not exhibit the attitude that really should be in line with their teammates. Uh, they uh, did not practice last week, did not play against against Utah. So as as pleasant as a person that Sean Aguano is, I think he also does find that fine line of uh, administering discipline and really trying to uh, change things that he believes in, um, you know, being that part of his mantra. He really, really does, doesn't have a problem uh, about that. But I think right now, more than anything, Ryan, the last couple of games, I just not did not see a game plan either from offensive coordinator Glenn Thomas or defense coordinator uh, Donnie Henderson that shows that they're actually prepared for the opponent. Um, you know, not to belabor the point on that awful loss, maybe Eastern Michigan, but uh, their uh, leading uh, rusher is a running back, Samson Evans, who the week before rushed for 19 yards in that loss to Buffalo, which I mentioned uh, earlier, rushed, 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 I think, for 50-some yards. He rushed for over 300 yards Goodness. against ASU. In the second half of that game, Eastern Michigan attempted only two passes, no, no, no completions. So all the yards they gained in the second half was 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 strictly on the ground. And sure, there were some um, injuries to the uh, some of the interior linemen for Arizona State. But again, that even your backups should definitely allow you to at least squeak out a win yeah. against a, against a Group Five opponent. So, um, I mean, I think Sean Aguana really has all, all the right intentions, uh, you, you know, in changing things up in practice, changing the team culture. But uh, quite frankly, Ryan, I mean, the offensive and defensive coordinator for ASU, they need to come up with a semi-effective, uh, you know, game plan so they don't get embarrassed uh, this week in the Coliseum, that they don't get embarrassed, you know, in the next week when they, when they host Washington and don't get embarrassed as they did uh, last, last week at home against Utah. To me, that's uh, really more of a crucial element as opposed to what Sean Aguano, as the interim head coach, will or will not do um, in his uh, temporary reign. Very fair, very fair. Let's talk about some of the personnel. Uh, I want to start with Emory Jones, a quarterback, a guy that I covered as a prospect. I covered Florida for two years. Emory Jones was one of the first big commits for Dan Mullen in his first recruiting class there when he got there was going to be his quarterback that he was going to mold, and it didn't quite pan out at Florida. He was a little erratic. He split time with Anthony Richardson last last year, uh, obviously hit the transfer portal. And so far this year, 818 yards, three touchdowns, two interceptions, not a ton of production. What's been your take on Emory Jones so far? Yeah, I think that uh, Emory Jones was somebody who who was believed to do somewhat better than Jaden Daniels did last year, and that is and that is a low bar. And this is not disparaging Jaden Daniels; it's strictly looking at his stats from last year. But but honestly, at this rate, I think that Emory Jones uh, could end up with worse stats than than Jaden Daniels did uh, last year. And again, that's uh, you know not not really a high bar to clear at, at all. Um, I just feel that um, in terms of, you know, connecting with his wide receivers, maybe it's not all on them. Maybe sometimes the wide receivers just have a, a higher number of drops. Maybe the game plan is not always conducive to what Emory Jones can and cannot do as a passer. 
but I just feel like uh, he, he really has been I mean, really has been lacking confidence. I don't think the offensive line has been doing any favors uh, for him, especially against Utah, which you could say, okay, Utah maybe the maybe the best front seven in the in the entire league, but uh, I don't think Emory Jones and or the offensive coordinator were really able to uh, do any game adjustments or halftime adjustments in terms of all the pass pressure uh, you know they were receiving. I would also say that you know Emory Jones maybe wants to be known as a dual-threat quarterback that can really st- you know, stand in the pocket, survey the field, go through his progressions, instead of, instead of taking off and running, but maybe sometimes trying to prove that point just a little too much uh, does result in a, in a lot of errant passes. And if anybody watched the game against Utah, there, were, there was at least two, three sacks out of the five that Utah recorded where Jones is absolutely just holding on the ball, uh, holding on to the ball with, you know, way, way too long, um, almost as if he doesn't want to hurt his, uh, you know, incompletion in percentage or, uh, you know, doesn't think that he really can run and uh, try to move the chains, at least at least with his feet. So really it's been a combination of a, of a lot of factors, Ryan, but I think the bottom line is that Emory Jones right now doesn't appear to be much of an upgrade at all over Jaden Daniels. And again, Jaden Daniels did set the bar pretty low in 2021. Well, it's funny you mentioned that with Emory Jones kind of wanting to prove himself as a pocket passer. When I... I went and visited his high school coaches uh, the summer before he got to Florida, and then they were adamant this guy is this guy is not a dual threat quarterback. He's a he's a pocket pro style quarterback that can run, and and they were really trying to sell that that uh, vision for him, and it just never manifested at Florida. Uh, he just wasn't a, a consistent passer. So what you're describing is is what I recall seeing, but but also I think that you're. Um, interpretation of what he wants to prove himself as is also in line with what I recall. Uh, in, in the run game, you mentioned uh, Xavion. Xavion Valde. I know it, it, it's it's a mouthful. It, it's it's a lot of letters that would be worth a good value in Scrabble for sure. Uh, <laughs> he's averaging six and a half yards a carry, three hundred ninety-one yards on the ground, four touchdowns. You mentioned him as one of the bright spots. Is there anyone you would compare him to, or or, or what's been most uh, impressive about his 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 game? Yeah, I mean, I don't think he's really as explosive and dynamic as Rashad White. Which, I mean, I think when you compare to the quarterback bar being higher or low, then Rashad White definitely uh, did leave Arizona State with a very very high bar to clear. And I think folks just wanted the drop off between Rashad White and Xavier Valade to be as minimal as possible. Maybe some people thought it was wishful thinking. But I think for the most part, Valaday has been able to achieve somewhat of a non-dramatic drop-off. You know, he's, he's somebody that you know, can run can run just as well between the tackles as he can off off tackle. Doesn't have elite speed, doesn't have elite, elite explosiveness, but somebody who really you know keeps his feet moving that does have a pretty pretty good frame on him. It's just a matter of the offensive line really cooperating because the offensive line not only are they not pass protecting all that great. But I would say even run blocking uh, does leave us left, left to desire, so to speak. Uh, I just feel also that Arizona State really being constant uh, com- a comeback mode in each of the games that they lost uh, probably don't really feature you know validate that much. He only had eight carries against against Utah, for example, and obviously that is one hell of a run defense to, to try to do some damage against. I'm not saying that the ASU offense is licking their chops facing the USC defense right now, but if they're hanging into any kind of shred of hope of being successful on that side of the ball, 
I think it's the fact that the USC, uh, you know, run defense and the stats and the game film uh, bears it out is definitely not is definitely not a, a strong suit of this team. So I have no doubt in my mind that you know ASU uh, really trying to move the chains to, to really keep the USC offense uh, you know off the field because I think it's going to be a unit that's that, that is going to be much more much more explosive uh, this week than they were last week in Corvallis. I think Xavier Valaday, at least on paper, does have the ability and the potential, you know, to to really do some damage in, in the run game for ASU. I'm not saying it's going to, you know, tilt the scales uh, by any means, but uh, I think that uh, after a week or two that he had some uh, subpar performances compared to how he played uh, earlier in the season, this might be an opportunity for him, at least personally, to bounce back somewhat. Well, I won't belabor the defensive side too much, as you've already hinted at, at where things stand. There is is there is there one player that's that's kind of been able to shine through, or that USC fans should be aware of. In, the, in, the, in terms of, in terms of the defense, you said right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you really have to point to uh, linebacker Kyle Soli, the, the Mike linebacker for for ASU. Obviously, has been a, a very very busy uh, person uh, the, 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 these first few weeks with a lot of teams having their way um, um, offensively and attack, attacking Arizona State. But he's somebody that's been really interesting uh, to, just to track the progress for the first two, three years, uh, really uh, was regulated to, 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 being, to being a second-teamer. But Coach has always said that uh, he's just a very a very high, high IQ football player, somebody who's really cusp of breaking out. And I thought that uh, in, in 2021, you know, if you take away that wacky, 2020 COVID year that preceded before that they only had four games. I think that uh, Kyle Soto has definitely proven himself to be one one of the better linebackers, uh, you know, for Arizona State. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that if the ASU defense some way somehow is able to have an above average performance, the, the Kyle Soto, the Mike linebacker, is definitely going to be a big big part of that. So uh, that's uh, one player I think that USC uh, fans should be on the lookout for uh, because uh, he's definitely the heart and soul. Of this, of this group for the Sun Devils. Well, let's, if you're up for it, let's get a prediction from you for Saturday. Yeah, I mean, uh, being a free touchdown underdog uh, is uh, quite, you know, quite, quite the line for, for any Pac-12 team, no matter how uh, great one team is perceived and how poor another is perceived uh, on, on the other end. Uh, I, I, have, I don't have any illusions that, that ASU is going to win this game. I really don't think they really can, really can keep it all that close. Um, on top of everything, you're still dealing with the Sun Devil program, and you can say, okay, different players, different coaches, but a team that historically just does not do well away from Tempe, even in some of, even in some of his more successful uh, um, seasons in recent memory. Um, I'll, I'll pick a score of uh, 41-25 USC, and, uh, and I think that uh, the only reason why the score is maybe somewhat close, if you can describe that as close, is just because USC in the fourth quarter is really letting the foot off the, off the gas pedal and letting ASU some way, somehow try to make that score respectable, if you, if you can call it that way. But uh, it's definitely going to be a dominating win um, you, you know, for, the, for, the, for USC, even though I think that ASU can find some success in the, in the running game. But uh, overall, the, the, the talent disparity right now between uh, both programs is just as wide as the Grand Canyon over here in our state. Well, well said, and it comes at a good time for the Trojans coming off that grueling win at Oregon State and before a couple of really tough matchups coming up with Washington State, Utah, and the like. Before I let you go, though, Ho, I wanted to just ask you about the future of the program and 
I, I know that I know from experience that in these coaching searches, so many names get thrown about, and you and you find out after the fact that no, that guy was never uh, on the radar, and so you you can't believe anything you see on Twitter. Definitely not going to hold you to this, and I'm not even expecting you to to have the list, so to speak. But at this point, who do, who do you think are the most exciting candidates for Arizona State, even maybe in an ideal scenario? Yeah, well, since it's like uh, semi-already out there, I mean, it's a premium article, but uh, the picture in, in that premium article definitely uh, conveys how, how I feel about, I'm not going to say leading candidate, but I think somebody who has and will continue to be in very strong consideration, and that's Oregon offensive coordinator Kenny Dillingham. And I'm not just, you know, throwing it out there as a, as a new sexy name uh, in the uh, head coaching candidate ranks. But he's somebody that actually attended high school uh, here in Scottsdale, graduated graduated from uh, ASU, was on the Todd Graham staff in 2014 and 2015. So uh, the, the, the ties for ASU uh, run really, really deep. Uh, granted, he's only, I believe, uh, 32 years old. So that would be uh, quite a statement and maybe for some an unsettling statement that ASU would go that young, uh, you know, with a, with a head coach. But... Um, you know, maybe it's more popular um, at USC and other schools in the Pac-12, but uh, to have an alumnus coach at Arizona State, I think is something that's going to be really, really neat and maybe just an out-of-the-box um, thinking in, in, a, in a good manner that can uh, maybe just uh, restore the, uh, the the faith and the support of, of the fan base. So I think that's somebody who's going to be in, 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 uh, in really, really strong consideration. Um, you know, you, you have like two somewhat wild cards that our current Pac-12 uh, coaches in Justin Wilcox and Cal and uh, and Jonathan Smith uh, in Oregon State, and I know those guys are, are pretty entrenched in their programs, especially Smith at, at Oregon State. But uh, you just kind of wonder in this uh, conference alignment circus that maybe is quiet right now, but could flare up in uh, in, in a month or so, or maybe after the regular season is over. Uh, you you're just kind of wondering if one of both coaches are really afraid of uh, their program, uh, you know, being left out and uh, either not joining another uh, another Power 5 uh, uh, conference or maybe just being part of a Pac-12 conference that's going to be very, very diluted. So uh, if they uh, know or feel that ASU is moving to greener pastures, which probably could be the Big 12 or nothing at this point, you know, maybe they, they want to make that move instead of taking their chances and uh, showing loyalty to, to, to their current program which really uh, ultimately is, is not, not going to advance her career. Um, so, I mean, the, those, are, those are some of the names that I think uh, are, are some of the more, more interesting ones. You know, the viability of them, uh, you know, I get I mean, might, might be in the eye of beholder, but uh, th- those are some of the coaches that are at least at the top of my mind right now. Uh, could that change uh, tomorrow? Could that change in a week? Absolutely, but that's how I see it right now. Good stuff. I, and since you brought it up, just, just to close out, I think every – Pac-12 team is is in somewhat a bit of flux about the future and what's going to happen. What is the prevailing uh, feeling around the Arizona State program or even just within the fan base about where they land when all the dominoes fall? Yeah, I mean, I think the fans, uh, at least early on in the process after USC and UCLA announced their move to the Big Ten, uh, really really wanted to go to the Big 12. They just didn't have confidence that a a Pac-12 without the LA schools even if we're able to convince uh, schools like Oregon and Washington and Stanford, which, depending on what report you read, are kind of itching to leave, I, I don't think the fans are just really, uh, you know, too happy to be part of a conference that is going to be 
um, a Pac-10 plus an SMU and SDSU, for example, which, again, seems to be the likely scenario as much as likely uh, can, can be described these days. So I, I think a move to the Big 12, if it did happen for Arizona State fans, is something that uh, is not going not gonna to be met with, with a lot of resistance, especially if it becomes abundantly clear that teams like Oregon, Washington, and, and or Stanford are just really you know one, one foot out of the door. I mean, not to get on a whole tangent over here, but my understanding is that the Big Ten is just kind of playing the waiting game with Notre Dame and with their media rights uh, contract expiring in 2024. And if Notre Dame wants to join the fray, then that probably closes the door on Oregon, Washington, and or Stanford. But if Notre Dame decides to still be independent, which I don't think anybody would blame them uh, doing that, then uh, then you have uh, the whole possible departures uh, from the Pac-12 uh, uh, wound uh, reopen re- re- altogether. And the question is, do both Arizona schools, do Utah and Colorado for that matter too, do they just really stay put and uh, being be just uh, reactive or are they going to be proactive and join the Big 12? It's, it's going to be really interesting to see. But, uh, you know, even though I know USC is one foot out of the door already, um, I think that you're also noticing that the Pac-12 is being as unified as, as unified can be. Is that a rock-solid foundation? I, th- I think that's anybody's guess, and that's an answer that uh, could be best delivered maybe three, four, three, four months from now. But, but right now, I, I think that Arizona State fans would not be disappointed if, if they left the back 12. They just feel like the uh, LA school's leaving, and I'm not here to deliver a guilt trip to anybody listening, uh, is really just uh, wreck, wreck, wreck the conference in a significant way, and there's really no reason for Arizona State uh, to stay in that league. But Time to time to time will tell. I mean, a lot of weird things are happening with this uh, with, with all these conference realignments, and I think that every everything and anything is on the table. Great stuff, Hode. Always awesome perspective. Really appreciate all the time today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ryan. I'll see you Saturday night at the Coliseum. Absolutely. Okay, and one last guest in the podcast today. You know him well, our rivals national recruiting director Adam Gorney. Adam, how's it going? Great, doing great. Well, just a few topics I wanted to hit with you today on the show. We'll start with Elijah Page, the four-star offensive tackle from Arizona, was committed to Notre Dame. Before that, was at the very near the very top of USC's wish list in this recruiting class. After his decommitment, didn't take long for him to get an official visit set up with the Trojans this coming weekend for the game against Arizona State. Where do you think things stand with Page and USC's chances? Yeah, I don't want to say the writing's on the wall here, but it looks like the writing might be on the wall for for him to not necessarily flip to USC, but the intention and the decommitment was that USC had started to kind of take the lead in his recruitment, and now he's going to be on campus this weekend. I think it looks very good for the Trojans. When he committed to Notre Dame, um, you know, he, there were definitely reasons why he did. He, you know, there are a lot of the offensive line coach and the offensive line tradition and all of those kinds of things, but it seemed like he was going to take visits and sort of feel it out a little bit. I think he probably wanted to see how the offense looked early in the season. And, you know, other than a little bit of a hiccup in Corvallis, even though winning, uh, it has looked very, very good. And so I don't know if a commitment is coming this weekend. I haven't been able to confirm that, but it certainly looks like USC is in a very strong position. Now, Paige is more highly rated than any of the four commits USC presently has in its offensive line class. What stands out to you about him as an offensive tackle and, and uh, kind of where he's been uh, slotted in, in, in the rankings this year? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he's a guy that 
has kind of like perfect offensive line size right now. Not a lot of bad weight, knocks people around, is physical, isn't afraid to do all the things necessary to, to kind of open up running lanes and pass protect and all those kinds of things. So there's a lot of reasons to like them. Notre Dame definitely liked them a lot. They recruited them hard. They obviously know how to develop and, and recruit offensive linemen. And so I think this it was definitely a big loss for those guys, um, even though they'll be able to pretty much rebound and have a good class as well. But it's definitely a, a nice pickup for USC. And we've talked a million times before about – you know, all the skilled players in the world are nice, but, you know, I think Lincoln has realized to win a national championship, you have to win on the offensive and defensive line. Um, even though that sounds cliche, that's really what you have to do, especially against SEC teams. And Elijah Page is one of those guys down the road, could be a really nice contributor on the offensive line in, in that setting for USC. Now, it's, it's worth noting that he is high school teammates with another top USC target, Tight end Deuce Robinson at Pinnacle High School in the Phoenix area. Deuce took a trip to Georgia this weekend. There was always a plan for, for that trip and, and for trips this fall. But uh, obviously USC fans get on edge whenever he goes anywhere else or there's any mention of him looking elsewhere as he's long been kind of considered uh, maybe a USC lean or, or favorite. Where do you think things stand with Deuce Robinson at this point? Yeah, I think after that Georgia visit, things got a whole lot more interesting. And, you know, I mean, if he's going to play a traditional tight end role in that Brock Bowers mold, you know, it's it's, a, it's pretty tough to turn down Georgia right now. They're throwing the ball to the tight ends. The offense for years had not looked explosive. It now looks explosive. He's the guy that can, can line up as a big receiver or sort of a split-out tight end. He's not incredibly interested in blocking, but he'll do it when necessary. So I think that makes it a whole lot more interesting now in terms of, of where things stand. USC can bring him in easily as a big outside receiver. He has that athleticism and that speed to be able to just kind of separate and be, and be that guy. He does not have to be a traditional tight end in any role. And Lincoln Riley is smart enough to figure out a way to incorporate him in his offense to get the ball in his hands. So I still think USC is in a very good position here. I do have to say baseball is going to play a very significant role in his decision-making. So, you know, I'm not entirely sure, honestly, where the USC baseball situation is right now or Georgia's or Texas's or really anyone's, but that will play a factor in, in his determining process because over the summer when I talked to his parents, um, it was basically sort of asked, like, if Deuce gets drafted Major League Baseball, will, will he even play college football? And it was still sort of undetermined at that point. So um, if he were to go to college and play football, which probably is likely, uh, the baseball program is going to play a big factor in that. So I think, you know, from a football perspective, USC still looks very good. Georgia makes it very intriguing. He's close with Arch Manning. So I think Texas will also get a look. Um, but I come back to him at the Elite 11 this summer. He was in Redondo Beach. He was hanging out for four straight days. He worked out every single day. He was, you know, th being thrown to by Malachi Nelson and Caleb Williams. And whether that was strategy or not on USC's part to get those guys around him, certainly a good recruiting tactic if possible. So he just seemed really comfortable. Looked like a guy that would be in USC's class. So I definitely think Georgia cannot be counted out for anybody in the country at any time, um, but I'd still sort of give the edge to USC here. Do you think he plays this out all the way to the end, or maybe a decision comes at some point this fall? Yeah, I, 
he's a guy that doesn't love the recruiting process and all the attention, but he's also someone who doesn't want to like waver on his decision or, you know, or rush, rush into something. I think he's going to still probably visit Texas. Um, we'll see if he makes it back to USC. You know, some people have said Louisville. I would find that very, very unlikely right now. I just, you know, I understand why people are going to Louisville if there's NIL deals in place and certainly don't begrudge them for the decisions they're making. But I just don't see that being factor in Deuce Robinson's calculus. So I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if he makes a decision here, but I, I think he'll probably take it to the early signing period and then sort of start figuring things from there. Well, the last time we spoke was about Malachi Nelson and his visit to Texas A&M uh, before the start of his senior season here. Uh, obviously, it's been an interesting start for A&M, and uh, if you're an aspiring quarterback with grand goals and you look at their recent history of quarterback play, it gives you, it gives you pause. Where do you think things stand now with Malachi Nelson? There really has not been a lot of recent buzz about the Aggies, at least as I've sensed it. Yeah, and that and that makes it really interesting. Um, you know, I think I think Texas A&M is still trying to get him very strongly. I think that NIL could play a major factor in at least their pitch to him, and how much that is going to factor into his final decision. I don't know. But Jimbo Fisher's recent history with quarterbacks has been really sort of abysmal. You know, you're talking about talent all over that field, and they can't score. They, they cannot move the ball, and they can't score points. You know, I read somewhere and said that his offense is just too complicated and he needs to dumb it down, and it's like, it's not too complicated. He's he, the, the quarterback doesn't want to make a mistake because he's going to get yelled at when he comes to the sideline, and there's just a million things going on in his head. And, and you know, against Miami, they couldn't score. When Middle Tennessee State was running up and down the field on Miami against Arkansas, you know, they hung on to that game when a missed field goal banked off the top of the goalpost and it happened not to go the other way. So, you know, this is a Texas A&M team that was supposed to be, you know, in playoff contention, and they just don't look very good. So, but, you know, that could also be seen as Malachi Nelson as a, a tremendous opportunity to be the guy to go in there and change that. My sense right now is that that has died down from, that visit and he's much stronger on on usc than ever if you follow him on social media he's constantly you know playing usc fight songs and doing tiktoks with you know usc music and those kinds of things and i think right now as it stands um he sticks with usc he's just always had an affinity for lincoln riley understandably uh, especially with his success with quarterbacks over you know many years and I think, you know, going down the road and playing for him at USC just makes a whole lot of sense, um, especially with, you know, how the offense has looked early this season for very long stretches. I think that's just more appealing to Malachi Nelson now than taking a risk um, at Texas A&M. Uh, that's certainly the sense that I have at this point, too. So good stuff. Great perspective, as always, Adam. We thank you for joining the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Well, that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. Our numbers have been uh, excellent this year, way up from uh, past years. Great to see that trend. Great to see the interest renewed in USC football, which um, is obviously the, the driving force behind all that. And it's going to be fun the rest of the season, I think. So keep tuning in each week. We will try and make the shows 
a little different each week, but always have Max and his analysis to whatever extent is warranted based on the game and upcoming matchup. But we will uh, mix in different guests and, and keep it fresh. Nothing more to add. Join us on Trojansports.com. Have full coverage the rest of the week. Lots to talk about. Join us during the game Saturday on our on our Trojan Talk message board for our uh, very animated in-game discussion, which has been especially entertaining this year. So if you're not subscribed, might be a good time to give us a try. Join in. Be a part of that in-game conversation. And, and then catch all of our post-game coverage. With that, we'll see you next week. And once again, thank you for listening to this podcast.